0: We just started a new sermon series last week called Weeping and the Heart of God. Weeping and the Heart of God. We see grieving throughout the pages of scripture. If you've ever read the Bible before, you'll know that, you'll know it's everywhere. What's funny is when you're young, you might skip over it, but as you get older, those uh, passages about grieving become more and more meaningful. Jesus weeps, obviously, David weeps, Hagar and Hannah both weep, The Psalms even give our tears a particular place and voice in worship. It's written in to the way that we worship God. Often, our tears are holy moments, right? Some of you know that. As a result, I wanted to look at several passages in Scripture where tears are a prominent feature of a particular story. And the question is, what do those tears tell us about our humanity? What do those tears tell us about our divinity, the fact that we're created in the image of God? Last week, we looked at Hagar and how God responded to her and to Ishmael, who were both weeping in the wilderness. And this week, we'll be looking at the story of Hannah from 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, before I pray and jump into this, let me give a bunch of credit here to Tim Keller. I actually heard Tim Keller preach on this passage. And, you know, reading Tim Keller or listening to him preach is tricky because once it's in your head, you can't quite get it out. It's a little bit like eating Bojangles biscuits, like once you've had a Bojangles biscuit, everything else kind of pales in comparison. Anyway, so before we jump in, let me take a moment and we'll pray. Father, thank you so much. I thank you that you gave us your word so that your word would be a light unto our path. Father, I thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, that Jesus would be the most accurate picture of you so that when we look at Jesus, we know that we're looking at you, our heavenly father. Father, obviously I thank you for the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the adoption, all of those things that are offered to us freely by you because of Jesus' perfect life and his death and his resurrection. And so we sit here today, Father, we sing here today, we read here today, we stand here today, not in our strength, not in our record, but rather we stand here in the strength of your good son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. So Paco Amador was a pastor in a little area called Little Village. It's on Chicago's west side. Uh, He lived in a neighborhood and pastored in a neighborhood that was filled with gang violence. It was a regular part of the, the culture there. He tells the following story about being invited to lead a prayer vigil for a young man who had been gunned down by a rival gang. And so I'm going to basically just read the story that he writes here. He says this he says when i arrived at the vigil a large crowd of young people including many known gang members had already gathered around the sidewalk where i should be praying i wondered what should i do what should i say i felt fearful and i felt inadequate yet i also knew that they had gathered for this prayer vigil they'd come willingly so amid my fears i prayed silently jesus do what you want me to do here as I looked at the crowd, I realized most of these scary-looking gang members were just kids, mostly in their mid or late teens, with some in their 20s. I was old enough to be their father. they had surely been told repeatedly by authority figures how wrong their actions were and how foolish gang activity was. But as I looked at these hurting teenagers, I wondered, what would Jesus say to these young people? So I asked permission to speak from my heart. And then I said, since most of you are half my age, I am the age of your fathers. Would you allow me to address you on behalf of your fathers? I know you've heard plenty of times that this back and forth violence in our neighborhood is complete nonsense. You've been told how destructive gang behavior is, but today, on behalf of your dads, I want to say to you what should have been said a long time ago. My son, my daughter, would you forgive me for not being there when you were little? Will you forgive me for not being there when you took your first steps? Will you forgive me for not being there to play catch with you when you were young? Will you forgive me for leaving you when you most needed me? As the words poured from my lips, I could not control myself. Tears ran freely down my cheeks. To my surprise, many of them started to weep with me. Something special happened in that moment. Following the gathering, they started to trust me even though I had no credibility in their world. I hadn't shared their life, but I had shared their pain. Today we're going to read another story about sorrow and sadness and tears. And this story, like the one, the little one we just read, is also an invitation into and to share someone else's pain. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, we read the story of Hannah, and we're invited to feel her hurt, and we're invited to experience her tears. So follow along with me, if you will, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. There was a certain man in Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah and the name of the other Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, for the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Not his greatest moment as a pastor. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now That's a long story. What should we see in this story? Though I am loath oftentimes to use alliteration, there was alliteration in this story today. And so there are three things we're looking at. The first is we see tears, Hannah's tears. We see her temptation. And then finally, we see her triumph. So tears, temptation, and triumph. Let's read about Hannah's tears. Verses six, seven, and then nine through 10. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. There's lots and lots of tears there and lots of ways in which the Scripture communicates her tears. Some of you are sitting in this room this morning and you need no introduction to Hannah's tears at all. Many of you have wrestled with the deep sadness of not being able to have children. Some of you have spent years hoping and praying and trying and giving up and then trying again and nothing. Intuitively and immediately, you can enter into Hannah's sorrow. It doesn't take you any effort whatsoever. Hannah's grief over being unable to bear children is massively complicated in this story by a couple of different factors. First of all, she's in a polygamous marriage. Every single place in Scripture where we read about polygamy, chaos and sadness and misery ensues. It's always a bad picture. The Bible goes out of its way not to excuse or to affirm polygamy, but rather to show its damaging impact on people's lives. In this case, Hannah and Peninnah are both married to Elkanah. That in and of itself would have been incredibly difficult. On top of that, however, Peninnah has many children and Hannah has none. Verse 4 goes out of its way to overstate Peninnah's family situation, talking about all of her sons and daughters. In other words, the text goes out of its way to emphasize how many children she has. Just imagine how hard it must have been for Hannah to go to the temple with Peninnah while she is surrounded by her brood of all these children. Just imagine how hard it would have been for her to go to the well or go to the market again with this uh, woman and all of her children. Surely it would have been a daily reminder to Hannah of her inability to have her own children. And on top of that, Peninnah was not gracious and she was not kind to Hannah, but instead she was spiteful and she was cruel to her rival, which is likely a product of that polygamy. Listen again to verse 6 and 7. It says this, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. It's just brutal, right? Just imagine if Peninnah had had Instagram or Facebook. She was bullying her rival. Of course, the source of Hannah's sadness was ultimately her failure to live up to her culture's feminine ideal, sort of this is what femininity looks like in the ancient Near East, having lots of children. In the ancient Near East, having children was the most valuable thing. It was of the utmost value. Having children meant financial stability for the family. It was more workers. Having children meant having people to take care of you in your old age. If you're one of the Pierce children, it still means that by the way, wherever you guys are. We tell them over and over again, you guys are our financial I mean our retirement policy. Anyway. Having children meant contributing to the overall production and the protection of your tribe, your city or your state. There was immense pressure on women to achieve a certain cultural ideal of femininity, and Hannah was distraught because she was painfully aware every single day that she didn't measure up. Now, let me pause here for just a moment, and let me speak primarily to women. Many of you in here this morning can identify with Hannah's inability to measure up to the culture's ideal of who you should be. Just let that sink in for a minute. And if you're honest with yourselves, then many of you feel crushed or at least controlled to some degree by that pressure. It's not just the ancient Near Eastern culture that pressures you into a certain view of femininity. Our Western culture does that just fine by itself. Just watch The View or Glamour or peruse Facebook or Instagram. You have to have an online business or you have to have a career and you need to have a house that looks like it's straight out of Garden and Gun magazine and you need to be skinny but also muscular at the same time, and you need to do Peloton and maybe CrossFit, and most importantly, you need to post about your life so that people can know that you're measuring up and maybe even setting the bar. It has to be exhausting. It has to be soul-crushing. In fact, I know that it is. According to an 80-year-long Harvard happiness study, women's happiness has been in steady decline since the 70s, reaching its lowest point last year before COVID-19. There is a problem. Correlation, as we know, those of us who took economics, does not imply causation, but it would still be foolish not to make some guesses about why that might be. But since I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist, I will stay in my lane. I do think, however, that the story of Hannah has something to offer us in the midst of this problem. So let's move to the second point, which is Hannah's temptation. Look at verses four through eight. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Some of you already can kind of see where this is going. Let me go ahead and acknowledge that this is 100% Tim Keller territory. Remember, the definition of idolatry is finding our identity or our security and our happiness in something other than God. Romans 1 identifies this pattern. Our temptation is to try to find our ultimate satisfaction in the creation rather than in the creator. We look for ultimate fulfillment in the blessings of God rather than in the God of the blessings. In this story, there's a temptation for Hannah to say, if only I could bear children, then then I'd be happy, then I'd be satisfied. If only I could bear children, then I'd be fulfilled, then I'd be complete. There's a very clear temptation in this story. In other words, her temptation was to create an idol out of being a mother. That temptation, frankly, still exists 3,500 years later. Her other temptation actually comes from Elkanah, her husband. We read in verse 5 that Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion of what he gave Peninnah. In other words, he showed his favoritism of her because, as the text says, he loved her. There's something a little bit romantic and a little bit sweet about those sentences, those lines, unless, of course, you're Peninnah. Then in verse 8, Elkanah says to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So here's the second temptation. Surely Hannah was tempted to say to herself, well, I may not be able to have children, but at least my husband loves me. And as Keller points out, if she had decided to make an idol out of Elkanah's love, just think how she could have weaponized that against Peninnah. Hannah could have said, well, you may have children, but Elkanah gives me a double portion. Or she could have wounded Paninna deeply, saying, you and I both know who he loves the most. Either way, her idolatry could have very quickly made her toxic and thus infused even more chaos into an already dysfunctional situation. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller uses the example of a woman in a church that he pastored in Virginia who became a believer, and as a result, she began to understand her own idolatry. He says this woman realized that she had idolized men's acceptance of her. That was her ultimate good. That was the thing that would satisfy her, so she thought. She started going to see a counselor after she became a believer, and her counselor at the time helped her realize that she had built her entire identity on being attractive to men. But now what was fascinating is that the counselor then made what sounded like a perfectly reasonable charge, at least to her. The counselor said, what you need to overcome this idolatry of men is a career. Some of you guys have read this story before. The woman told Keller that she immediately understood that what the counselor was doing was telling her to trade in her typically female idol for a typically male idol. And in her newfound spiritual maturity, she realized that in the end that either would ultimately enslave her and that only by finding her identity in God would she actually be set free to enjoy either a husband or a career. She understood her temptation. Hannah's temptation is our temptation as well. We're all tempted to find our identity and our security in some created thing or in some gift that God has given us. We're tempted to take a good thing, and make it into an ultimate thing. For some of us, it might be family. For others, it could be romance. For someone else, it might be career. Or it could be comfort. When you're young, it could be athletics. It could be grades. It could be getting into a particular college or a particular university. It could be having a boyfriend. It could be having a girlfriend. But whatever it is, if it's not God, it will ultimately fail you. Your beauty Will fade. Your intellect will diminish. Your children will move away. At least they should, in some respects. Your career will come to an end. And in the meantime, your idols will enslave you because idols, as Keller points out again and again, demand complete fidelity. And you will sacrifice for them. You will do it. You are doing it. You're currently sacrificing whatever it is in your life on behalf of your idol. If your career is your idol, then you'll sacrifice your family on that altar, right? You might have grown up in a home like that. You may be in a marriage like that. If freedom is your idol, then you'll sacrifice career, and you'll sacrifice marriage, and you'll sacrifice family, because those things do not go hand in hand with freedom. If pleasing people is your idol, then you'll sacrifice your integrity. Somebody told me about that one time. It's only when God is the ultimate source of your satisfaction that you'll be able to embrace and enjoy each of those god-given gifts to their fullest. Does that make sense? It's only when God is your ultimate good, your ultimate satisfaction, it's only when God is the most beautiful thing that everything else can find its proper place beneath that. If your ultimate thing is career, if your ultimate thing is family, if your ultimate thing is athleticism, if your ultimate thing is some created thing or some gift that God has given you, you'll never actually be able to enjoy anything to its fullest. You'll always actually be miserable. It's only when God is at the top of that order of loves that everything will be set free for you to enjoy. So, so far we've looked at Hannah's tears. We've looked at her temptation, and then finally we're going to look at her triumph. Look at verses 9 through 11 and verse 18. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 18, then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, he translates verse nine this way. So Hannah ate, Then she pulled herself together, slipped away quietly, and entered into the sanctuary. There's something particularly resolute in that description of Hannah. Verse 9 in the ESV says Hannah rose. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter says this phrase, to rise, is actually a Hebrew idiom that means to take charge. In other words, Hannah took charge. After all of her tears, after all of her temptations, Hannah stands up. She goes to the tabernacle where she weeps and she prays and she promises that if God gives her a child, she will dedicate him to the service of the Lord. Now, we've got to be honest here and say this sounds a lot like bargaining to us. We hear these prayers in movies sometimes. Some of us have made similar promises. Lord, if you'll just rescue me this time, I'll quit drinking or I'll quit smoking or I'll quit doing whatever. But what's interesting here is her reaction after offering her prayer to God and before she knows whether or not God is actually going to answer her prayer. Verse 18 says, Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So before God answered her prayer, her sadness melted away. Why? It would seem that Hannah was finally able to give over her desires to the Lord and to trust him with the outcome, let me just read that one more time. It would seem that Hannah was finally able to give her desires to the Lord and to trust him with the outcome. Notice one more thing. Verse 18 doesn't call her Hannah. Rather, it says, then the woman went her way and her face was no longer sad. It's almost as if this message wasn't just for Hannah. Maybe it's for other people too, of course it is. This kind of response might sound too good to be true for some of us. It might sound overly simplistic to others. The reality is that we have to make a conscious effort throughout our lives to keep God as our ultimate good thing. Of course, there are people that have written about this over the years. There's a woman named Rosaria Butterfield who recently became a believer. And she says this about her idolatry. She says, one very difficult aspect of sin is that my sin never feels like sin to me. My sin feels like life to me, plain and simple. In other words, it feels great. My heart, she says, is an idol factory, and my mind is an excuse-making factory. Hannah triumphed over her idol in the moment, but the reality is that she, like the rest of us, surely had to fight this battle over and over and over again. Sometimes we'll win that battle, and oftentimes we'll lose that battle. Our ultimate hope, however, is not found in our victory, but rather in Christ's victory for us, won on the cross. That's our hope. That's our victory. That's the message that Hannah's prayer hints at in verses nine and 10 of chapter two, which Amber read this morning. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord, sin, death, shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give his strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That's our hope. That's our strength. That's our security. That's our safety. When we can see Jesus as our ultimate thing, as the ultimate beautiful thing, then all of a sudden we're set free. And the amazing thing about set free is we're set free from performance. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to get it right all the time. We just have to trust in our Savior, in our Messiah.